thanking some of you. Some of you may have heard I spent Friday and Saturday night in the hospital, uh, which is an ongoing process. I feel okay this morning. Uh, it's still kind of unresolved. I've been dizzy and having some stuff going on. So if I'm less cogent this morning than normal, I appreciate your patience and your prayers. But God called me for this test this morning, and I was not going to call in sick. Um, but, you know, my head's in a little bit of a fog, so bear with me. Um, I'm going to start by opening with a word of prayer, and then we'll get going. And I'm going to fix this microphone because I feel like I'm ringing all over the place. Am I good? Okay. I hate that sound. All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, for this beautiful morning, Lord, and this time again uh, to look uh, in this book that you've provided for us on how to think biblically in a world that has fallen in sin, Lord. And I pray uh, we have an edifying lesson this morning. You be with me in uh, the teaching of this lesson. And uh, I just pray that uh, your will would be done here. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you're like me, and I know that you are, uh, I find the whole situation of the debate going on around climate change, a very interesting object lesson in human behavior. Because the irrationality that comes out in something like this is fascinating to me. And just to give you kind of a humorous look at what I mean by this, this is one of my favorite Far Side cartoons. Oh, helps if I turn the clicker on. This is one of my favorite Far Side cartoons, right? And the entire story of the atheist point of view of creation is around climate change. The Earth was very, very hot, and it condensed into a ball, and it cooled down, and the dinosaurs grew, and then there was this giant like snowstorm, and everything died off, and then the mammals came, and now we're warming up again, right? So somehow, the world that we live in today is being treated like it's this isolated phenomena of change, and everybody needs to panic. And just to give you some sense of scale of what we're talking about here, right, our Earth is incredibly complex. Right? On an average year, there's about 100,000 thunderstorms. There's about 40 to 50 lightning strikes per second worldwide. Right? Uh, you've got about 500,000 earthquakes annually. Sorry, I'm trying to read my notes here. And 50 to 60 volcanic eruptions per year. And on average, 100 or 1,200 tornadoes per year in the United States. Right? This is a complicated ecosystem of things that are all working together. And it's incredibly hard to calculate and manage. So I want you to keep that in mind as you look at this lesson and you go back into your uh, daily lives and you see how these things are reported on, how they're talked about, some of the debate, because it's an intricately complex system and the data is very thin. We're going to talk about some of the science behind it. And the arguments are sometimes more polarizing than scientifically based. And it's not unlike some of the things that happen when you uh, get into a conversation with someone on evolution versus creation, right? And as Christians, I think we're called to kind of understand the science. God is a God of logic and reason, and we should be as well. So, and feel free to ask questions as we go through, please. So for the purposes of today, we're going to talk about, you know, kind of what is global warming. Uh, I'm going to ground some of the definitions on that. We're going to look at why uh, there's a debate uh, and what the Bible says about some of the rationales, what's driving that. Um, we're going to look at what the Bible says on the matter. And then we're going to talk about, like, as Christians, I guess my batteries are dying, how are we to live in this kind of system and environment with all this is going on? So let's start with some background information. So believe it or not, um, 
climate change models actually got politicized during the strategic defense initiative debates in the 80s. So there was a huge war, for lack of a better term, going on between uh, the people that wanted to fund the missile defense systems and the people that did not. And part of the debate raged over how bad a nuclear winter would actually be if the United States and the Soviet Union got into a full-scale nuclear war. That's the genesis of climate change models that we use today. And the problem with those models, which was, if you go back and do some of the research, the same problem we're having today, is there were huge variances in the predictions. So some models said the Earth would cool off by a couple of degrees. Some models said that the Earth would freeze entirely for months upon end and all life on Earth would die. Stop me if this sounds familiar, right? And so the debate became the politicization of the science as a means to affecting policy and political change. And that behavior is a lot of what's creeping into the debate on global change today. Um, the first report on this about carbon dioxide induced warming was actually published in 1965. This is not a new phenomenon, even though it's getting a lot of attention recently. Uh, the IPCC, which is the Internet Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, first released its study in 1995. And that's important because that study, which is now almost 20 years old, is the basis for a lot of the scientific data that's being used in the debate today. So it's a 20-year-old study. It's based on some pretty good science, but how you interpret the science uh, is you know, kind of some of what we'll look at. Uh, the first President Bush was actually the first president to advocate governmental research and funding into seeking solutions, uh, which I think is very interesting on a number of levels. And this is not the first man-made climate issue we've had, even in my lifetime. You may remember uh, the problems with the ozone layer with uh, CFCs, chlorofluorocarbons, Mr. Science, uh, and acid rain, right? Both of those were man-made problems that we as a culture and a global society solved. So the debate over global warming is coming on the heels of that. Uh, and so a lot of those lessons and you know, battle lines and everything else are what's driving this. So what is global warming? Well, loosely defined, uh, it is the rise in the average temperature of the Earth's atmosphere and its oceans since the late 19th century. And uh, most of that rise, it's about two-thirds of, two of it, uh, has occurred since 1980. The overall change on the mean from 1980 to now is about uh, 1.4 degrees Fahrenheit, universally. right? And no matter what side of the debate you land on, uh, nobody will argue this. right? So there's scientific consensus around the fact that our climate is changing. right? The Earth is getting warmer. Uh, where the debate tends to rage is why and what we need to do about it, uh, which we'll look at in a little bit. And there's a lot of factors that contribute to this. First, you have the sun. Right? So interestingly enough, the entire solar system is getting warmer. So you know, what we'll see in the video next week is with an increase of sunspot activity and solar flares, the planets tend to get warmer. A lot of what you're hearing about uh, in the exploration of Mars is was there water on Mars? Right? Well, Mars must have been much cooler than it was at one point if water was going to exist in a highly volatile environment. Cattle and livestock produce 800 million metric tons of methane gas, which I don't have to tell you what that means. Uh, but methane is a greenhouse gas and obviously adds to the environment. Cities. There are more cities and non-porous surfaces on Earth than ever before. Cities retain heat. Cities produce heat. 
And why this is important is because when you look at the trending on the temperature fluctuations, the models have different variances for how they adjust for this. So they're making educated guesses on how much of an impact a city or a dense urban center is increasing the heat, and they're trying to factor that out. But it is just an educated guess. Okay. Uh, people. Ever been in a small room with a lot of people? People generate heat. People generate methane, much like livestock. Um, and there are more people on Earth than have ever been on Earth before. Right? This isn't factored into the equation. And of course, I don't know why my bills aren't working here, industry, both you know, machines that produce carbon dioxide, carbon monoxide, uh, and the industries that produce them in terms of factories, sulfur production, fossil fuels, et cetera. So still on the consensus, right? With striving climate change has long believed that variations in the Earth orbit around the sun over thousands of years. We are in a normal warming cycle that heats up the Earth, and the Earth is getting hotter. And as the Earth warms up, it releases huge amounts of carbon dioxide, and this creates a greenhouse effect that is making much of the warming more intense. So I want to be clear about two things, and this is something to be keen for. Carbon dioxide doesn't cause global warming. Carbon dioxide makes global warming worse. And it's clear to understand that distinction. So if somebody says, right, we're producing all this carbon dioxide and it's causing global warming, they don't understand the science of what they're doing. And there's other things that are causing the Earth to heat up. But rightly or wrongly, we need to understand that what are the variables in this we need to fix or not fix and have a biblical perspective on how we approach those things. Uh, this is a very famous chart, which you will see. And again, depending on whether you are a global warming skeptic or a global warming enthusiast, for lack of a better term, uh, this is another chart that very rarely comes into debate. And for a lot of reasons, you can understand why it's such a uh, murky subject to be discussing about. Because here you have CO2 levels, and here you have average Arctic temperature. right? And they correlate, but they're not exactly locked. So you can see CO2 is going up, average temperature is going down. But the CO2 levels do correlate to our gas, oil, and coal consumption. So it is not a cause, it's a correlation. right? So again, the effect may be worse but the actual impact is still not well understood. So why is there a debate? Right? We have a lot of things that both sides of this argument agree on. And again, I'm going to get to the biblical principles of this. I thought it was very helpful to start grounding you in the sort of background and the science on this. Well, part of the problem, I work in marketing, I deal with data all day long, is our data set is actually very small. So if you're an evolutionist, you believe the Earth is hundreds of millions, possibly billions of years old. And statistically speaking, you have 163 years of scientifically accurate data on temperature, which is a fraction of a fraction of a percentage of the overall mean. If you, like us, believe that the Earth is 6,000 years old, you still have a fraction of a percentage of data to work from, and it is not statistically significant to actually draw any verifiable conclusion. Right. So just to give you some background, 1950 is basically the date that everybody agrees is when we started having accurate temperature readings and climate readings. The Hadley Center in England uh, started an institute of science and did a lot of work around barometric studies, weather studies, climate, et cetera. 1958 saw the advent of uh, satellite, or sorry, weather balloons that measured uh, atmospheric temperature. And then in 1980, we started to get very sophisticated satellites that uh, measure weather. And why, to me, this is kind of comical is that I don't know if any of you have ever watched a weather report. Um, 
but nine times out of 10, they can't tell you what the weather's going to be next week correctly, uh, looking at a very small localized region and having a much better sample of data. And yet, a lot of the conclusions that are being drawn out of this science are trying to tell you what the weather is going to be like 150 years from now. So just keep all that in mind, right? So I bring this up because the warming period we're in here around the year 2000 actually matches a warming period around 800 to 1000 BC. Now again, data wasn't great back then and it is somewhat anecdotal, but this is the era in time where uh, grapes grew in England, the Vikings conquered Greenland, which if you know anything about Greenland, it's mostly a sheet of ice, right? So it must have been habitable. And here's where you start to see how both sides of the argument cherry pick data, right? People who say that climate change is a hoax, I'll use the polarizations of the argument for the sake of illustration, say, well, this proves that global warming isn't actually happening, right? Nothing to see here. And the people that believe that global warming is a threat to mankind and the destruction of the Earth say, well, this was just localized warming, and we don't really know it was happening on the rest of the Earth. So, it's an object lesson in the fact that you can cherry pick data out of this debate to prove any side of the argument that you want. Because there's just so much data and it's so incomplete. Would you disagree? I want to point to you because you're the scientist. And there's one other thing to keep in mind, right? From a biblical perspective, the humanist viewpoint on this is all based on love of self. So Romans 1, 20, 25, for since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature having been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse, for even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations and gave their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of a corruptible man or birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Therefore, God gave them over to the lusts of their hearts, to impurity, so that their bodies would be dishonored among them, for they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. Now keep this in mind. There's basically two primary arguments on this, if I can look at it from a biblical perspective, that come down from an atheist standpoint. Either you believe that human beings are destroying a planet and the planet would be better off without us. In essence, from an evolutionary standpoint, we are a virus with sneakers. And if we all just died off, the Earth would be fine. Or you believe that I should be entitled to harvest as much as I can out of the Earth for my own personal gain, right? I can exploit its resources, exploit its industries. I don't care what happens because I'm getting mine. Again, I'm going to polarize the argument for the sake of illustration. And this really plays itself out if you follow the money. Okay? So the politicization, polit I will get that word right before the end of this lesson, right? Politicization. The science is being politicized. Thank you. There we go. And here's why, right? From an industry perspective, there is billions of dollars at stake. Cap and trade, regulation on um, carbon emissions, how you produce things, has an enormous impact on the bottom line of an industry. Right? I'm not going to minimize that. Taxes, uh, regulations, fees, cleanups. This doesn't mean that businesses shouldn't be responsible. But irresponsible regulation will hurt the growth of an economy. So it is something that has to be uh, examined. And obviously, if you're a business owner, you have a vested interest in obviously trying to make your businesses as successful as possible. Right? 
governments can lobby for new taxes. So in the past year, about $1 billion was spent on lobbying this issue, and that was evenly split on both sides of the debate. So this is not a pro-business versus pro-environment like David versus Goliath argument, like you would believe. The energy industry spent about $595 billion, uh, million lobbying for this. Uh, groups like Greenpeace, et cetera, spent about $478 million lobbying for this. There are huge amounts of money being poured into Washington to advocate the science and laws that come around with this issue, right? And companies like Greenpeace and, and organizations like that have seen enormous spikes in donations uh, by politicizing this issue. So a lot of what you're seeing about this debate is a struggle for money. And this is how it ends up. This is, this is fun for me, right? You get a polarization of the debate that completely obfuscates the facts. So on the one hand, you get this, right? Most scientists agree, we're going to talk about that in a second, that global warming presents the greatest threat to the environment, right? National Geographic. Climate change is a complete hoax from Ford, right? So if, as a Christian, it's like, what are we left to believe in this debate? And it gets even worse, right? You see these pictures from you know, Greenpeace of like, the earth is completely flooded and we're all going to be living on life rafts. And then the other side of the argument is like, carbon trading is Hitler-style genocide, right? They're using emotional arguments to try and get a scientific um, viewpoint through. And a lot of times, they're just making this stuff up. This is my favorite thing ever, right? National Geographic ran this article about sea levels rising fast on the East Coast, right? And they show the last house on Holland Island in Maryland where 360 people lived before tides took over the fire, over, uh, sorry, before tides took over. Now what they fail to mention in this picture is this house was abandoned in 1910. The entire island was abandoned in 1910, right? This house has looked like this for almost 100 years. So you've got a picture of rising tides and imminent doom, but it's been like that for a long time. That's the part to kind of leave out. So I look at this and say, well, if the science is so compelling, why do you got to make stuff up? And this happens like on both sides of this issue. So what does the Bible say, right? So to start, a lot of there has been a movement inside of evangelical circuits, which is called the creation care movement. And they use this passage. Um, to say that the Bible proves that global warming is real, right? The earth mourns and withers, the world fades and withers, the exalted of the people of the earth fade away. The earth is also polluted by its inhabitants, for they transgressed laws, violated statutes, broke the everlasting covenant. Therefore, a curse devours the earth, and those who live in it are held guilty. Therefore, the inhabitants of the earth are burned, and few men are left. Now, if you took that completely out of context, it seems like it's talking about global warming. But this is actually pointing to what happens in Revelation when the earth is destroyed and the new heavens and the new earth are created, right? So out of context, this passage seems like it validates uh, the case for global warming, but it actually does not. So where does that leave us, right? We are to discern, as much as humanly possible, the truth for ourselves, right? Ecclesiastes 1.13, and I set my mind to seek and explore by wisdom concerning all that has been done under heaven. It is a grievous task which God has given to the sons of men to be afflicted with. So I bring this up because it, in a lot of ways it ties to our Sunday school lesson this afternoon where as Christians we are to be very keenly aware of the truthful merits of an argument, work very hard to understand what is true and what is not, and train ourselves to listen and discern for false teaching, whether it's biblical, scientific, or otherwise. I pulled out one, another one of my favorite passages from the book of Bill, chapter 1, verse 1, which is, Thou shalt not pray, fall prey to logical fallacies. 
And I'm going to go through a couple of them. We had a video on it, uh, when was that? About a year ago that I thought was fantastic. And I'm going to remind you of some of them because on both sides of this debate, you're going to see it in a video we're going to look at next week from Answers in Genesis, the logical fallacies abound. And this goes back, I think, to the passage before, right? We are to you know, go through this process of a grievous task. We have to put the work in. The word grievous to me seems it's arduous to try and figure out what's right and what's true, but it's our responsibility, right? So from the book of Bill. No true Scotsman. So this is a logical fallacy where you're be making an appeal to purity as a way to dismiss an argument. And this one's very easy to see uh, in this debate because you will hear things like no self-respecting scientist would, right? No one who believe, you know, no academically accredited scientist would. All the research says, right? Those are logical fallacies, okay? And it is a very easy way to make it sound like um, one argument is good and one argument is bad. Oops, this was already open. Another way this shows up is in the language and how people talk about the debate, right? You are either pro-global warming or you are a climate change denier. You are either pro-business or you're an, you know, a radical environmentalist. Right? Those are no true Scotsman logical fallacies in how we label things. Here's the second one, the Texas sharpshooter. I talked about this a little bit. Cherry picking data clusters to suit your argument. So I'll give you an example that's kind of um, funny, but it'll make the point. So the makers of a candy drink point to research that show that five countries where that drink is sold, uh, in three of them, they're the top 10 healthiest countries on earth. Therefore, that drink makes people healthy. See how the two don't correlate? Here's another one. Straw man. Measuring someone's argument to make it, or misrepresenting someone's argument to make it easier to attack. Um, Senator wants to spend less on defense, therefore he hates America and he, want, he wants us to be weak. You're either with us or you love terror. These are like straw man arguments, right? The two don't really go together. Any West Wing fans? I know there's one sitting over here. Here's my favorite one. Post hoc ergo propter hoc. After, therefore, because of, right? Correlation does not equal causality, much like we saw in that chart before with CO2. Just because CO2 levels are rising and temperatures are rising, you can't actually prove that the one is causing the other. They correlate, there's a strong indication, but it's not actual proof. Okay? Um, I'll give you another like radical example. There's a great website called Thou Shalt Not Commit Logical Fallacies. It's actually not from the Book of Bill, where you can read some examples of these. So pointing to a chart, Roger shows how temperatures have been rising over the past few centuries, while at the same time the number of pirates have been decreasing, thus pirates cool the world and global warming is a hoax. That's how you cherry pick pieces of data set and tie them together in a way that proves your argument but isn't actually true. An appeal to emotion. This is going to show up in a couple of places, too. Think of the kids, right? Have you ever heard that? Think of the children we can save. Um, you know, you will hear about, you know, pro-economics on some of these debates. You'll hear about how we can help third world countries with some of the solutions proposed on these debates. None of these are scientifically tied to data. So they're good for the discussion, and they shouldn't be discounted, but you have to keep them in the context in which they're important. Because otherwise, you fall to these kind of praise on emotion. Um, and you get kind of lost in the sauce. I'll be happy to give anybody who wants these slides these slides. So 
let's keep some other things in mind, right? God gave man dominion over the earth. So Genesis 1.28, God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves. So we are given the earth to use and cultivate as we see fit, right? There's no debate over that. So from a Christian perspective, anyone who thinks that somehow we are to live harmoniously with the environment doesn't understand the creation mandate that we are to dominate over the environment. The earth is here as a resource for man. Doesn't mean we should necessarily exploit it, but it's here for us to use. And kind of that goes to my next point, right? God has also commanded us to be responsible for it. So Leviticus 25:17. Sorry, I'm just going to read this to you. Lord spoke to Moses at Mount Sinai, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, When you come into the land which I shall give you, then the land shall have a Sabbath to the Lord. Six years you shall sow your field, six years you shall prune your vineyard and gather in its crop. But during the seventh year the land shall have a Sabbath rest, a Sabbath to the Lord. You shall not sow your field, nor prune your vineyard, nor harvest aftergrowth. You shall not reap, and your grapes of untrimmed vines you shall not gather. The land shall have a sabbatical year. All of you shall have the Sabbath products of the land for food yourself and your male and female slaves and your hired man and your foreign resident, those who live as aliens with you, even your cattle and the animals that are in the land shall have its crop to eat. Now, we all understand the concept of the Sabbath and the day of rest and how that ties to the Genesis Accord. But in this is woven the concept of sustainability. If you over farm the land, you will not be able to produce crops. So I think there's wisdom here in Leviticus that God has given us in terms of our perspective on the land that we are given. Yes, we are here for a finite amount of time, but we are not to, I believe, um, overwrought the land to where it becomes unusable. So we also know how the story ends, right? I establish my covenant with you, and all flesh shall never again be cut off by the water of the flood, neither shall there again be a flood to destroy the earth. And this is the most common you know, you saw the picture before about sea levels rising, right? This is the image you'll see, right? The ice caps are going to melt. Antarctica is going to melt. The whole world's going to be flooded over. We're all going to die, right? We're not all going to die by a flood. We know how we're all going to die, uh, and this is not it. And in fact, most of the scientific models, while there would be coastal flooding, it doesn't nearly look like this. So the conclusion to any debate on climate change can't be global flooding that destroys the planet, because we know that can't possibly happen. <laughs> a little bit, but Venice is actually sinking. So it was built on a swamp. That's Venice's problem. Oh, yeah, yeah. Build your house on a rock, right? So, by his, so we know how the earth is going to end, right? By his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. But do not let this one fact escape your notice, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years is like a day. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. Since all these things to be, are to be destroyed in his way, in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat. But according to his promise, we are looking for a new heaven and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. So the earth is going to get really hot. I doubt we're going to have anything to do with it, right? Because I don't think, you know, even if I run my lawnmower 24-7, I'm not going to be able to produce this kind of effect. 
So that leads to the pivotal question, right? As Christians, how shall we live, right? So we talked a little bit about this before. The heart of the discerning acquires knowledge, and the ears of the wise seek it out. So I, I, I beg you, right? Don't get caught up into the emotion of any of these things. Creation versus evolution. Global warming versus not global warming. I don't know what the right counter argument is, right? If it's a scientifically based argument, you have to look at the data very, very carefully, right? And there's a promise for this, you know? How blessed is the man who finds wisdom and the man who gains understanding, right? There is wisdom in seeking the truth rather than just following an argument because you saw it on TV. And let me just give you all a warning about just television in general, if you haven't one already. All media has bias, all of it. The history of media in this country is founded on bias. You know that? Like newspapers were owned by political influencers who advocated a point of view, and none of that has changed in the hundreds of years that we have been a democracy. I don't care if you watch CNN, Fox, MSNBC, whatever. They are going to report based on a point of view, and you have to be very careful to pull the point of view out of the science that they're actually reporting. So just be careful with what you watch on TV, well, with anything, but you know, TV news especially. Examine everything carefully. I think I have hit this point. Also, we are to be subject to rules and authorities. So with a lot of this debate, there's new regulations, uh, there's new taxes, there's new laws being um, represented and potentially uh, put into practice. And we are to obey those, whether we like them or not. Right? I think we, Pastor mentioned this two weeks ago, uh, this passage, so I won't read the whole thing again. But there is a call for us as Christians to be subject to governing authority. And so, you know, as this debate progresses, there's probably going to be a lot of um, implications coming out of Washington, uh, and we as Christians need to be respectfully obedient to that. And uh, more importantly, I think for all of us, we're to use creation to care for one another. So in the debate that you'll see, or I'm sorry, in the video you'll see next week and some of the research you may do on your own, there's a lot of, so then what do we do? And I think as Christians, any decision that we make for ourselves on how we feel about this issue has to be based on one anothering. So not just what's good for me, or not what's just good for America, but what potentially has, in our human opinion, uh, the best potential for um, positively affecting everyone. So I'll give you a case in point. Yeah? There's an argument to be made, and again, you have to have data to correlate, that letting the earth warm, letting the earth warm, uh, would be good for third world countries, right? The Sahara is shrinking. Carbon dioxide produces plant growth, right? There is a legitimate argument uh, that warmth will actually help people, and that's fair, right? There's also a legitimate argument around the fact that despite the fact that we're producing all this carbon dioxide, we're actually cutting down trees at a rate faster than we ever have before. There's actually no plants to consume and produce oxygen out of the carbon dioxide. So you have to look at those two things in context, right? But as Christians, it's like, if we are going to advocate at an earthly level for a governmental policy, I think, maybe you can agree or disagree, that it should be with one anothering in mind, right? And this, you know, is played out in scripture. So when you reap the harvest of the land, when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap to the very corners of your field, nor gather the gleaning of your harvest. You are to leave them for the needy and for the alien. I am the Lord your God. So in a very small way, this is about, like, not using everything to the bottom of the cup. We're to leave something for someone else. Now, in this case, Leviticus is talking about the fruits of the field uh, and you know, the vegetables and the harvest. But I think there's a broader concept here to the resources of the earth as Christians. Right? You shall sow your land for six years and gather in its yield, but on the seventh year, I think I read this before. Again, 
back to leaving some of the resources for those less fortunate. Very important. If, therefore, there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation in love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection, compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, and tent on one person, purpose. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important to yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which is also in Christ. Now, this is talking to a community of believers, obviously. But again, the context of the idea, I think, holds true for our perspective on this debate. One more. Owe one another nothing. Owe no one nothing. Except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not commit murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And any other commandment are summed up by this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Now, in the world we live in, where what you do in Manhattan affects what happens in the sub-Sahara, our neighbor takes on a global perspective. Right? And as Christians, we have to keep that in mind. So again, I keep saying this, but I think it's a fundamental point that the book is trying to make and I believe in, and it will be reinforced in the video next week, that there's no clear mandate on how to view this issue, but the biblical perspective on what solutions we take should have a neighborly perspective in its context. And wow, I went through this pretty quick. Hopefully you'll have a lot of questions. And we're, you know, I think through all of this, we have to look forward to our redemption in Christ. What I found very interesting when I engage people in uh, a debate on evolution versus creation uh, is how poorly they understand the science. And knowing that science and God are not incompatible, they're actually very compatible, you can use the science as a framework to start to have them understand what creationism actually means. It's not mystical, right? There's scientific evidence that proves that God did what he said he did in the Bible. Similarly here, I think you can use the um, global warming, climate change discussion as a means of pointing towards Christ. So, you know, there, I, we talked about some frameworks on this, right? The fear around climate change is about the destruction of humanity, right? Which obviously is an inherent personal fear of dying or having your children not have a better world than you had before, right? That's a very easy nerve to touch in terms of like, why are you afraid of dying? Right? The science around it and what's going to happen. There's scriptural mandates around how the earth is going to end. It's very easy uh, to bridge to that conversation saying, well, as a Christian, I believe this is how the world's going to head and go from there. So it, it can be uh, a very substantive uh, stepping point for the gospel. And you know, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there was no longer any sea. Right? There's going to be a whole new earth. There's going to be a whole new heaven. So in a lot of ways, the place that we live on, not, a, not in a lot of ways, in every way, the place we live on is disposable. But I don't think we are to view it as such. Uh, that we're to be responsible with the creation that we were given, and God will choose to dispose of it when he sees fit. It could be tomorrow. It could be 10,000 years from now. Uh, we don't know. And so, you know, as you go forth, sorry we ended early. Um, I'm sure there'll be questions. 
you know, I have seen this play out in a number of different ways. I talked about the creation care movement and kind of a misplacement of the gospel from a uh, Christian standpoint in terms of my responsibility isn't about evangelization, it's about caring for the earth. And the flip side of that from a Christian perspective is I'm going to drive, you know, a gas-guzzling SUV and use styrofoam and spray hairspray in the air and do all this stuff because it's all going to burn up anyway, right? Uh, I'm being a little ridiculous, but um, I think there's got to be a balance in there with all of this stuff. And as Christians, I think we have to find that balance from a biblical perspective as much as possible because this is one of those areas where Scripture is a little bit silent in terms of how we should respond. So that's all I had, and hopefully some of you will have Otherwise, you can all get coffee or a Dave. I think that's true to a certain extent, but there's even in these models, there's enormous variances. So, for instance, the sea level rise predictions from like 10 years ago said that if all of the ice on Earth melted, sea levels would rise something like 10 feet. And they've adjusted that down to say if all Earth on the or all ice on the Earth melted tomorrow, sea level would rise seven inches. So, on a macro change, you could say sea levels will rise. But the data keeps changing to where the variability in it is so wide that it's hard to say how big of an impact it will actually have. So you can look at the trend and say, yes, the Earth will get warmer. But even the variance is there. Is it 3 degrees? Is it 7 degrees? Is it 10 degrees? Like, there are models that show both. In this case, there's your, your, your uh, example is a good one because you can look at how many people are going to cheat on their taxes last, you know, this year based on what happened last year with some statistical probability. Here we have no benchmark. You know, the only period in history that we had that we have measurable data on this kind of warming was back in 800 BC, and even then the data was pretty spartan. So I agree with you if the data sets were strong enough that you had something comparatively you could hold it against. So I'm not saying there's not a macro trend that should be ignored, but the variances can be wildly overestimated on both sides of the debate. Yes. 
And there's actually been less hurricanes in recent years than there were in the 80s. So that's. And it didn't make snow at all, which would be Right, so I'm, therefore, right. That's another logical fallacy. It's cold out today, therefore, global warming isn't true. Right? One other little note, that, uh, and then I'll get to you. There's a map that you may have seen floating around Facebook where it showed a globe and heat indexes and how it was getting warmer globally um, you know, year over year over year for the past three years. The, the bottom part of that map is always cut off because Antarctica is actually getting colder. So again, it doesn't mean that trend-wise, urban areas and the Earth as a whole isn't warming up, but you have to remove the things that don't fit your argument because then you have some spaming to do. Yes. Yes. I probably, I should have gone in, in the upfront. I talked about cattle. You know, I didn't do volcanoes. But yeah, the, the earth itself is warming itself up. The sun is having a huge impact on that. Those are, and I think that there's something else to keep in mind. I'm glad you brought this up because there are things about what's going on with our climate that we can't control. But there are things that we can control. The, the question is how much emphasis do we put on the things that we control? And I think that's where a lot of the debate is. But yeah, there's a lot. But again, you know, it's hard to measure because it's such a large ecosystem. So, yes, sir. Well, I think what's happening is the presentation of the science that most of us are exposed to isn't actually coming from scientists. It's coming from the media, government officials, lobbying groups, advocacy groups who are cherry-picking pieces of data that support the argument they want to make and then hyperbolizing that to its you know, most absurd output. So I would agree with you. There is scientific, a large body of scientific work that focuses in on this issue, and people working in earnest on both sides of this, whether it's man-made or not. But what you are typically exposed to is not that. Yeah. Exactly. And there's a, I don't know if you've, any of you have seen the, the movie Expelled. That's uh, Ben Stein's documentary on what's going on in the scientific community around creation science. But there's something very similar happening here where scientific, scientists live off of research grants. A lot of that money comes from private industries and think tanks. Some of it comes from the government. 
and the groups that are controlling the research grants actually will not give you a grant unless your hypothesis supports an already existing point of view. So if you want to do, you want to get a grant to see if creationism is true, good luck. And in a lot of cases, your career might be over. It's happening a lot now with global science and climate change because it's very difficult to get a research grant if your hypothesis is climate change is not a man-made event. So a lot of that work is actually happening in universities, which are a little bit more of a safe haven. Uh, but most of the studies that are done uh, by K Street and some of the lobbying groups in Washington are done from a point of view, not from a scientific curiosity. You're going to verify? No, it's fine. Probably not a good idea. You're asking a good question. I, and again, I don't have a simple answer. I think each of us has to be led by his own conscience Especially on this stuff. Well, again, you know, I can only be responsible for my own behavior. And so in a lot of ways, it's like, am I being responsible with the resources that I've been blessed with? So for me and us, uh, I think it's less about I'm only going to buy, you know, LED light bulbs and whatever. I try and do that stuff as much as possible. But I, it, Earth is ours to exploit. Maybe that's the wrong word. So we're here to enjoy what God has given us. I, I think for everyone, it's a question of like, if I do X, does that feel like I'm being responsible with my resources? Am I paying too much for something? It might be something, you know, it's a consumption conversation. It really comes down to personal consumption. So if you feel like you want to be green, I, I can't tell you that you're wrong in that. If you feel like you don't want to be green, I can't tell you that you're wrong in that. But I would say your perspective has to be around one another. So am I, do we have a landfill problem in my community? Is there a recycling program? Am I using it, right? Are there things in my local neighborhood that I could be taking advantage of that are causing the local government to spend less money or causing less money to be spent on something else or taking a burden off a sewage treatment plant? Or, you know, there's a thousand different ways to answer that question, and your mileage may vary. Um, so I'm going to dance around answering it. There you go. Any other questions? Yes, sir. Yeah, so were you here at the beginning of the, because I'm going to repeat what I, okay. All you have to do on this is follow the money. So 
in the past year, there was about a billion dollars spent by lobbying groups on both sides of the issue uh, around this debate. And so when you think about it from having taxes or you know, penalties levied against your business that affects your profit margin or getting higher levels of donations for your um, you know, policy group or being able to levy taxes on a group of people or an industry to get another revenue stream, like a lot of it comes down to how do I use the science to get something that I want? So I think that's where a lot, the debate is not happening in a lot of ways from who's got the right science. The debate is happening from whose science can I use to accomplish my objective? So the debate is around how do I get, you know, I'm gonna say the same thing again, how do I get what I want? So that's why I think it's raging. And there's, I think, an undercurrent of fear that like, we're all gonna die. Yeah. Yes, at this stage, it is. Oh. Well, you live in the world, right? And so I think this is one of many things that it's easy to get swept away into. And so I think the book um, rightly points out that as Christians, it's good to have a perspective on what the issue is so we can rightly understand it and put it in the context of our overall worldview of what Christ has done and what Christ is going to do. So given all the attention it's having in the media right now, it's very easy to get swept up in some of these things. And if you don't rightly understand both the creation man point mandate and how the story ends, uh, you may lose some perspective. Hundred percent agree. Anything else? Yes, sir. Yes. Sure. Right. Right. 
And I think you're making a, a great point. I don't think as Christians we should necessarily view business or industry or cars or the use of fossil fuels as bad things and that we should just stop doing what we're doing because I think that's the other side of this, which is what the creation care movement is doing, which is where you're so concerned about keeping the earth healthy, you lose the mindset of the mandate to evangelize. But to what both of you were saying, just keeping in mind, like, am I using these things that God has given me in a responsible fashion? So it doesn't mean I come home and I just leave my car on, right? Because why not? You know, I can afford to fill the tank. Um, that wouldn't be responsible. It doesn't mean I don't drive my car. I think I have time for one more question, then we'll close. Totally agree. Well said. So I'll stick around for a little bit if anybody wants to chat, because it's 1030, and I know you're all dying for some coffee. I'll close in prayer, and we'll go from there. Uh, Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, for this lesson this morning and for this time to uh, look at some of these vital lessons in the book, Lord. And we just look forward to the preaching today. Be with Pastor and, and give him strength and use him as a, a vehicle to amplify your word, Lord. And uh, we pray for the food that we're about to partake in. I ask that you bless it to our bodies. Um, prepare our hearts and minds for the worship today, Lord, and we look forward to glorifying you and listening to your word. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.